From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. Prime Minister's questions today. We'll be taking that live in just a few moments when the leader of the opposition stands up for his first question. But first, an update on a big international story that we've been following. The UK has begun evacuating Brits from Sudan with military flights operated by the Royal Air Force. Suella Bradman, the Home Secretary, says that 200 UK nationals have now been flown to Cyprus. The government reckons there could be as many as 4,400 British nationals there. And it's not clear that the current ceasefire will hold. The PM spokesperson says that the evacuation will go on, quote, as long as possible. Mm. The government, of course, hoping that it will do a better job than that. The the terrible uh, mess we saw from uh, the US and its allies in Afghanistan. Well, already, uh, perhaps there are question marks about that simply because of the delays, the time uh, that it has taken to evacuate these individuals. But there are actually, you inquire, a lot of stories around border issues for the UK that I want to talk about. Um, So Rishi Sunak is... um, hoping to speed up border checks for people going from the UK to the EU. Of course, this is something we saw at Easter and the summer holidays are coming up. He wants a deal so that Brits can use EU e-gates. So that's when you use a kind of electronic passport rather than having a manual check and a stamping of your passport that is blamed for some of the delays. Formal approach hasn't been made, according to a UK official. But, you know, will the practicalities actually uh, trump the Brexit red lines on both sides of that argument? Yeah, and interestingly, Spain has done this unilaterally. So you can use e-gates when you go to Spain, but that is not the case with, uh, as far as I know, any other country uh, in Europe. So yeah, the UK keen to, to keen to extend that. And there does seem to be a bit of movement on this. So a spokesperson for the European Commission has said they can't comment on any discussions, informal or not. Wink, wink. Well, it looks like we've got the leader of the opposition Can up I now. the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the brave British personnel involved in the evacuation effort from Sudan. The government must do everything in its power to urgently evacuate UK nationals still trapped in Sudan. Mr Speaker, yesterday George Osborne said that the Tory party's handling of the economy makes them vandals. He's right, isn't he? Prime Minister, well, Mr Mr. Speaker, while we're in the business of quoting former chancellors and shadow chancellors, I don't know if he saw the remarks from a a former Labour shadow chancellor yesterday who said our country had faced four once-in-a-century shocks, threats to our economy, and the fact that we've come through it is a triumph, Mr Speaker. 
Well, th- th- that former Chancellor not only said there were a bunch of Tory vandals, he also said there was a self-induced financial crisis on the country. Yeah. That's those vandals. And they like to pretend that it was all just one week of madness last autumn. Yeah. But the truth is, it's been 13 years yeah. of failure. Real wages, the money in people's pockets, have fallen by £1,600 per household. £1,600. The Prime Minister's response to impose 24 Tory tax rises in three years. 24. How on earth does he think his low-growth, high-tax economy is working for working people? Prime Minister. Mr. Mr Speaker, because of the action that we've taken, on the national living wage at record levels, on pension, on universal credit, and the generous cost of living payments. Just yesterday, Mr. Speaker, almost eight million households receiving direct support from this, cost of this Conservative government. We are supporting working people. But just this week, Mr. Speaker, in the other place, we've seen his party side with protesters and with picketers. He should actually try backing working people. Lost £1,600 worse off. Mr. Speaker, I'm genuinely fascinated to know does he really think that everything's fine or is he just clueless about life outside of his bubble? Mr. Speaker, because because of the actions that we have taken, well, let's just go over it. A single mother, a single mother working full time on the national living wage this year will get £1,300 more support from this government. A working couple on low income with two children will get £1,800, Mr Speaker. That's what delivering for Working Britain looks like. But if he has any actual ideas for the economy, he should say so. Because all I hear from the party opposite, it's more spending, more borrowing, higher inflation, higher interest rates. It's the same old Labour Party. This is Mr 24 tax rises. And I've never heard anything so out of touch as the answer that he has just given. And it's not just his refusal to take any responsibility for the damage they've done, the crashed economy, the hit to living standards. It's also he refuses to take the action that's needed. He could stop the handouts he's giving to oil and gas giants. He could scrap his beloved non-DOM status. He could put that money back in the hands of working people and get the NHS back on its feet. That's what a Labour government would do. Why doesn't he? Mr. Mr. Speaker, the record was clear. Look at it right now. Record, record numbers of people in work, Mr. Speaker. Record numbers of people in work. Inequality no lower. The number of people in poverty lower. Those in low pay, the lowest numbers on record, Mr. Speaker. He talks about this non-dom thing. I think he's already spent the money that he claims he'd raised on five different things, Mr. Speaker, because it's the same old Labour Party. They're always running out of other people's money. Mr. Speaker. Order. I had enough last week. I'm certainly not having this continuous noise. So just be aware that somebody will be going for that cup of tea today. Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, he calls it this non dom thing. Let's let's be honest about what his refusal to scrap the non dom status means. 
It means that at every possible opportunity, he has voted to put taxes up on working people, while at the same time taking every possible opportunity to protect a tax avoidance scheme that helped his own finances. Why is the Prime Minister telling people across the country that their taxes must go up so that his can stay low? Mr Speaker, the fact of these, the very wealthiest pay more tax and the poorest pay less tax under that today than an un- under any year of the last Labour government, Mr Speaker. We've also boosted the national living wage, boosted universal credit and pensioners. But Mr Speaker, the rank hypocrisy of it, as we saw, as we saw last week, when it comes to his own special pension scheme. I said it last week, but I'll say it again. It's, it's literally one law for him and a tax rise for everybody else. Mr Speaker, here's the difference. I'd scrap his pension giveaway, whether it affected me or not. He refuses, he refuses to scrap the non-DOM status that benefits him and his family. This, I can see why he's attracted to this non-DOM thing. This Prime Minister is so removed from the country that he boasted that he didn't know a single working-class person. So insulated from reality that he proudly told a Tory garden party how he'd moved money from poorer areas and handed it to rich ones. So out of touch that he looks at a petrol pump and a debit card like they've just arrived from Mars. Is it any wonder that he smiles his way through the cost of living crisis while putting other people's taxes up? Is it any wonder he doesn't have a clue how food prices are hammering families across the country? And is it any wonder that under him people are paying more and more and getting less and less? Mr. Mr. Speaker, let's just we'll just look at what's happened just in this just in this week, Mr. Speaker, where the Labour Party have put themselves on Monday in the other place. They decided to side with extremist protesters. Just yesterday, they sided with polluters, Mr. Speaker. And tonight, and tonight, and tonight, and tonight. And tonight, and tonight we will see them siding with the people smugglers, Mr Speaker. I tell you this, whilst we're in the business of sending back the 1,000th illegal migrant from Albania, Mr Speaker, we're delivering cost of living payments to millions of households just yesterday and today. We've announced we put 20,000 more police officers on the street, Mr Speaker. We're siding with the British people, Mr Speaker. That's what the Conservative government does. So uh, that was the exchange then between uh, Rishi Sunak and and Keir Starmer. Look, I think the one thing to take away from this um, is the fact that some of the lines that the Conservative Party leader are trying to pin on the Labour leader do seem quite reminiscent of past Mm. kind of... um, past claims about the Labour Party being unable to kind of manage finances, running out of other people's money. I mean, that's a very familiar phrase. Keir Starmer, though, came out uh, quite strongly uh, accusing the Tories of being economic vandals, the line around 13 years of failure coming back, a low growth, high tax economy. Um, And yet, 
Rishi Sunak trying to stick to his points, uh, record number of people in work. I do think the best line, though, taking away from all of this was uh, when Keir Starmer talked about the prime minister looking at a petrol pump and a debit card as if they'd just arrived from Mars. I mean, that is a zinger. And I do think that that's one that voters have in their minds. You'll remember what happened. Yeah, well, I do. He he was at the petrol station and he pretended that a cheaper car than he actually owns was his. And he tried to pay for the petrol with a debit card and didn't tap the debit card correctly it was all fumble i mean it it did look terrible look the man wears prada loafers i think he needs to lean into that alas you've got (laughs) you um, may say that (laughs) but he can't check that's who he is look you've got keir starmer really playing on sunak's class can you tell you've got local elections coming around the corner Mm. you can hear the drumbeat uh, of the campaign as we get closer to it it was like bingo of course he said 13 years of failure that's exactly uh, what the message that Labour wants to hammer home before uh, that campaign Um, yeah trying to paint Rishi Sunak as being out of touch is he clueless about life outside his bubble he says it it grates doesn't it when Rishi Sunak's talking about uh, poverty being lower this non-dom thing yes uh, when the you're non-dom in... non-domicile status coming up again the issue of, i mean we're look, in a cost of living crisis it, we are in the middle of a cost of living crisis and yet we have had many very wealthy um prime ministers in the past i don't think that that kind of uh is necessarily problematic but i do think that the attack lines are obviously you know quite quite clear this idea of um of the prime minister perhaps you know benefiting from what he's doing with tax policy I think that's very very difficult and and Sunak looked awkward at that point I thought yeah it's an easy picture to paint for Keir Starmer that Mm. the non-dom status of Rishi Sunak as he says benefits the Prime Minister and his family it's an easy one to be tweeted a clip to be tweeted later but it's true isn't it that the non-dom that the the money that would be raised from closing that loophole uh, it's it's quite limited it isn't going to pay for the whole shopping list of things that Labour wants to do if it came into government. No, absolutely not. Uh, but this idea of, I think, the Labour Party putting numbers around how much worse off people are, you know, £1,600, £1,600 worse off, I think is quite important. I thought, though, again, pick up on on what the Conservatives talked about. Rishi Sunak accused uh, Starmer of more spending, more borrowing, meaning higher inflation and higher interest rates from a Labour government. That was an interesting spin. I mean, it's not you know the, the Labour government that would be able to affect our interest rates, but I think that that kind of soup of concerns that individual families, householders will have in the UK, I think that's quite an important line that the Prime Minister mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I just want to bring in a story that's on the terminal about the use of food banks, because when you're talking yes. about all of this, this is the reality. Mm. Uh, story on the terminal reporting that um, the UK's biggest food bank network, the Trussell Trust, says demands at an all time high it distributed almost three million food parcels in the last uh, year from april 2022 to march 2023 it's it's really painful that it is painful especially when you read into the detail and you understand that those food parcels in the past were enough food to feed an individual for three days but since the pandemic those food parcels actually last for seven days so when you think about that that's a lot 
of food that is being given out, you know, and they included teachers and nurses. We know we've got the teacher strike tomorrow in a lot of parts of the UK. So, yeah, I think it is a very, very sort of sore and painful subject. Exactly. This is what inflation is. This is what double digit inflation means. So when you've got Rishi Sunak bragging about how well the economy is doing, mm. That's why I say it grates. Yeah. Okay, so that's Prime Minister's questions then for you. Shall we move on, though, and talk about another equally important issue? So the Bank of England should be stripped of any mandate on climate change. That was the testimony of two quite unlikely allies, the former Conservative Chancellor George Osborne and the Labour shadow uh, former Chancellor uh, Ed Balls. They were questioned by the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee yesterday. Uh, and to discuss, joining us now is Bloomberg's economy reporter Phil Aldrich. Great to have you in studio. How are you? Very good, thanks. Nice to see you. So look, quite an interesting return of two obviously well-known former rivals. They're looking quite sort of um, pally, I think, is the word. quite relaxed also. Yeah. Now united on this idea of net zero. What, what are they saying? So, they, so the Bank of England got given um, a net zero mandate in its... Um, uh, in 2021 yes. as part of its monetary policy remit. Um, I th- I th- the point that the, both of them were making and and, they, and, the, and the, actually the whole House of Lords uh, uh, committee is sort of investigating is whether, whether the remit has just kind of become a little bit, uh, has, just, has just mushroomed into something which the mm. banks no longer, like, so it, it, it distracts all these baubles, as they say, that have been added to the remit are distracting the bank from its core responsibility, which is to tackle inflation. So really, this whole debate has come up because of what's happening in the inflation environment and um, and, and the arguments that the bank was had its eye off the ball. And maybe one of the reasons it had the eye off the, its eye off the ball was because of, you know, all these extra bits that were added into its into its remit, which one of which was this um uh, you know, was the net zero following the government's, uh, which was an, a Mark Carney idea. And mm. but yeah. for anyone who's not familiar, what does the Bank of England do towards climate goals? Does it just fly Andrew Bailey around the world less than it does Mark Carney? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, uh, I, there's two things it does. There's, so first of all, that it, it has a it has a secondary. So its first remit is to basically get inflation back to two percent. Its secondary remit is to support the government's policies. Um, now. What was added to that to those policies and those objectives, those government objectives, was the specific remit of uh, support the government's net zero objectives. So, mm. this was so. Um, it's just a, a relatively banal statement. So, there's nothing specific that they have to do on the monetary policy for that. On the financial policy side, they have actually done some stress tests and some some climate change stress tests to see whether the banks would would withstand, you know, a you know a two percentage uh, two degree of warm um, two degree of warming and um, the uh, the whether they whether the risks that are sort of accompany you know climate change would bring down the financial and cause financial system and cause a systemic uh, financial and problem. that's something that they actually weren't against the stress test actually was the bit that emerged as so, yeah. something that that these two former heavyweights sort of did so Ed Balls, Ed Balls is saying, yeah, he would do stress tests. Okay. Um, the problem again there is that is that the net zero um, uh, mandate is added to the financial stability remit as well. So you could say do the stress test. You could just as they do a stress test against cyber, but there is no cyber um, aspect to the to the financial policy remit. So a, a cyber threat. So 
Uh, you could just do a stress test, but you don't need to have it in the remit. You don't need to blur the distinctions of the core responsibilities of mm. financial stability on the one hand and um, uh, monetary policy uh, stability on the other. What's your assessment of how the Bank of England are doing? We've had a lot of criticism, haven't we, from the, the current leadership. Uh, Tim Congdon, the economist, was on uh, on Bloomberg Radio recently saying that uh, they are uh, not doing a, a good job. And certainly on inflation, it's not, it's not been good, has it? They did start hiking before uh, other central banks. So uh, have they really missed the trick? Well, Ed Balls, if we're going to talk about Ed Balls and, and George Osborne, they, they were actually relatively sanguine about what the bank has done. They've, they've you know, as, as Ed Balls said, you know, no one saw the supply shock coming. There was a lot of people worrying about unemployment shooting up after the furlough scheme ended, um, and uh, no one anticipated the Ukraine war. I mean, yes, so he gave them a lot of leeway, and in fact, in PMQs, that's exactly what the Prime Minister cited today. Yeah. So, so these, so uh, did the Bank of England make a mistake? Osborne said they all made the same mistake. They all made the same mistake. And basically, if you look backwards, you can see there was clearly an error there that they didn't preempt it. The question is, the more important question is, when these shocks emerge, how do you react? And, and it's the reaction function of the central banks, which is, which is, I guess, the most important thing. And you can see that they have done the right thing. And the Bank of England, to its credit, was the first to move. It then got into trouble because it wasn't moving as fast as the US Federal Reserve. And so it sped up its interest rate rises. And, and now interest rates are at 4.25%. This has been the, the sharpest tightening cycle since you know since uh, uh, 1980s you know you wouldn't you, you you can't say that they've they've been wrong in their reaction function what you can say is maybe they should have anticipated some more of the inflation or just been on it a bit earlier and indeed in a podcast the chief economist of the bank of england hugh pill acknowledged that they'd pretty much been too slow on the way in uh, mm. to, to deal with the inflation problem. Um, interestingly, he seems to have made his own little gaffe, faux pas in that podcast. He says that, uh, you know, everybody's got to accept that they're going to be poorer as a result of the inflation crisis. Is it a gaffe or is that just the fact? You know, I heard from Swati Dingra, I remember recently, she said that it's uh, not the Bank of England's job to deal with the distributional consequences of inflation. He's just agreeing with her, isn't he? Yeah, so the bit which it gets into the gaff is the use of the word accept. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so telling people that they have to accept that they're going to be poorer is slightly different to just explaining the situation, mm. which he did actually explain very, very well, which is we have a past the parcel inflation problem, which is, you know, Wait, people want to bid up their wages because they want to be protected against the cost of living crisis. And when they do that, companies are like, well, I've got to, I've got to prepare my margins. So and I'm going to bid up the prices. price. Yeah. And then the people are seeing higher prices. So I've got to get my wages but, up. And so that past the parcel issue, as he explained, does uh, does um, create the inflation thing? So you so the the use of the word accept is slightly offensive, but you can see it's come out of a bit of frustration that this is happening. Also, you do have to layer on what happened a year ago, which is Andrew Bailey. Mm saying yeah. that workers should not be demanding higher wage settlements, you know, as you as you say, um, because that's going to sort of create problems in terms of the economy. So that's going back more than a year. So I thought that it wasn't a gaffe, though, Lizzie, because my reading of it was that Pill uh, had focused on 
someone having to accept this, but that not just being individuals, it also yeah. being businesses no, no, think and he's, energy companies. He definitely wasn't directing it just at people. He was ju- yeah, directing which is different it to what the Bank of England government no, was saying. But Andrew Bailey did say that businesses are going to have to take a hit to their margins as well. He just true. It was just delivered more gaff like. <laughs> you know, he, I think the BBC asked him whether workers should decline a pay rise, and it, that ended up being the bit that was focused on. But he also said that you know companies shouldn't be price gouging either. But the reason I say it's a gaffe is because it's been received as one on Twitter. You know, you've got people pointing out the chief economist's six-figure salary mm. in the same way that <laughs> uh, Bailey had the response. Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, he should he shouldn't have he shouldn't have been telling. He, there's there's no mandate for the Bank of England to try and control inflation by telling people not to not to ask for wage rises and by telling companies not to ask for profit uh, to protect their profit margins. That's not in their mandate, just as net zero probably shouldn't be in their mandate um, either because it doesn't really work. It does distract from the political demands, uh, the political efforts that need to be taken to yeah. to get on top of the climate change issues. Yeah, but in, in, fairness, in fairness to Hugh Peel, he is talking about fast pass for companies and exactly, uh, yeah. for workers. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just been taken out of context, uh, as usual, by, by Twitter jumping on things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Phil. Great to have you on and great to have your reporting as well. Really uh, interesting kind of, yeah, dissecting, well, net zero. I suppose also, I mean, perhaps one final thought, though, on actually whether the Bank of England is helping. If you care about climate change, as we all surely do, do, do you think that it helps to have them involved in this way, in this kind of oversight so, role? So it's quite interesting. The way, that they, the way that campaigners would like the Bank of England to work on climate change is to add basically capital surcharges to, to if you have a mortgage on a house with no insulation, you're going to have to pay a higher mortgage because the bank has got a surcharge that will go on that mortgage. For example, the campaigners would also like companies which are basically highly polluting companies to face higher capital charges so that it's, it's more expensive to lend to them. If um, uh, if if the Bank of England did that, it would be straying into political into the wow. political arena because it would be it would be definitely discriminating against certain certain groups of people, discriminating against uh, certain companies, and and really, I don't think it is the bank's responsibility to do that. The bank has 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 very separate it, it, responsibilities, and it doesn't need to be distracted from them. And what should be happening? The stress test makes sense because you want to see financial stability in this scenario is would, would be protected, but the politicians would be should be setting carbon prices or mm. doing subsidies or it's, okay. it, the whole thing is really for them not I, the bank i think that is really fascinating i've learned something thank you so much for explaining it so beautifully uh, that is bloomberg's economy reporter phil aldrich yeah really interesting stuff well that's the last pmqs for a couple of weeks more uh, recess in fact two recesses back to back uh, for the coronation and uh, uh, for uh, mayday i thought this week's pmqs felt like it was written by chat gpt it was kind of you know it was it was a really great oh, like greatest hits so wasn't good. it <laughs> yeah, well that's so it was. from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by james walcock and our audio engineer was mariful hussein i'm ewan potts i'm caroline hepler and i'm lizzie burden we'll be back with more tomorrow this is bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.